Good evening. Please open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to be taking our study from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. The cultural approach to sex and sexual desire is actually quite simple. Sex and sexual desire is simply a function or desire of the body. It's simply this drive which man shares with the animals, uh, not different from eating, drinking, and sleeping. Sex is this physical demand that really must be must be filled. And if we do not satisfy it, then we will have all sorts of physiological problems, psychological problems, and physical problems. And so the mantra that our culture adopts is forget the prudery that makes us hide from this natural thing and throw away those inhibitions. Essentially, culture or man idolizes sex and sexual desire as the pinnacle of all human existence. And to restrain oneself is really a crime. We might be tempted to say that this is very new, that there's no culture that has ever been like our culture is today. But we know that this is not new at all. The Greek and Roman societies could be said to be even more sex crazed than our society is today. And from the outset, I think it'd be helpful if we put away the notion that this is never a tempting lifestyle to us. To just throw away our inhibitions. I don't think that's helpful to act like it's not tempting in the slightest. Even though, in fact, the thriving Thessalonian Christians who were doing quite well in their sanctification and quite well in their purity. Paul will refer to it. Paul still felt the need to say, let's strive for more purity. Let's talk about sexual sins in a very direct and helpful way. And that's what he does here in First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 8. And as we talk about this, we all know sexual sins are very difficult to talk about. It can be awkward at times. But if we're honest, we know sexual sins are the ones that are absolutely destroying families and individuals, no matter how old they are, both young and old, man and woman, we can all we can all relate, can we not, to the terrible damaging effects of sexual sins and lust. Whether it's in our own life or someone else's life, we know how damaging it is. Satan has so many weapons in his arsenal. And purity is so difficult. How can we battle this lifestyle that tempts us so heavily? Certainly we know that Satan wants us to believe that sexual purity is impossible for Christians. But I hope that by the end of our study tonight, we will see that sexual purity is not impossible for Christians. And I really believe that the theology of lust that's presented here in this passage can absolutely change the way we battle and view sexual sins and lust. And I hope it will be very helpful for you. So notice with me in the text, we're going to start with verses one through five. And what we're going to see here is I want us to pay careful attention to how Paul defines lust. Notice with me, chapter four of first Thessalonians verse one. Finally, then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing 
that you do so more and more. For you know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. God's will is very simply stated for these Christians in verse 3. Abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia, and that simply refers to any type of sexual activity outside of one's first monogamous heterosexual marriage. And if you would like more information on that, you can look to Brent's lesson from the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5. We're not going to deal with that in all of its entirety. Because just like Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, Paul shows in verses 4 to 5 that he's not just interested or concerned with talking about the activity of sexual immorality, is he? He's interested in talking about the desires behind it. Their bodies, notice verse 4 and 5, their bodies must not conform to the passion of lust that the Gentiles follow. Lust is condemned both here and in Matthew chapter 5 and in other places. But what is lust really? I believe that the text right here in front of us gives a very good and helpful definition of what lust is. Lust is presented for us in verse 5, right? But it's presented actually as the antithesis of what our bodies and sexual desire should be in verse 4 when Paul speaks of control, holiness, and honor. Therefore, sexual desire minus control, minus holiness, and minus honor is lust. That's what lust is, is sexual desire minus control, holiness, and honor. Therefore, Paul's problem is not with sex or sexual desire, which is often the uh, accusation made by many non-Christians in the world, and we can set that from the outset. Christians like sex just fine. There is no problem with sex or sexual desire. Sex and sexual desire is good. It's God-created. It's natural. Paul's concern is with the unnatural and sinful desire of passionate lust, which is sexual desire stripped of the control, holiness, and honor that govern sexual desire. So let's consider the meaning of each of these concepts for just a moment. First, notice how sexual desire is lust when it's not within our control. This relates to how we control our bodies. Desire becomes unnatural and it transforms into lust when we are no longer in control of that desire. Rather, when the desire begins to control us. You know that feeling in your body that you know that feeling that kind of ends up governing you and ruling you? Have you ever felt that where you just feel like there's something inside of you that is driving you to do something? That, when related to sexual desire, is called lust. And many will say of their lust, when they'll actually call it sexual desire, they'll just say, well, this is just a natural desire that I just can't control and sometimes I'm just going to slip up. 
But Paul disagrees. Natural, God-given desires are by definition controllable. When we do not have ownership of our sexual desires, we are filled with passionate lust. Second, notice how sexual desire is lust when holiness is subtracted. This relates to a respect for God and his created order and his law. Sexual desire is holy and has a high view of God when the objects of our sexual desire are fall within God's created order that's prescribed for us in Genesis chapter 2, which is one man, one, mo- one woman in a marriage together forever. This means that sexual desire is only holy when the object of one's sexual desire is the first person of the opposite sex that we are currently married to. All sexual desire outside of this is unholy and does not have a high view of God and is lust. Third, we notice that sexual desire is lust when it shows no honor. And this took me a little bit to kind of wrap my my brain around this. But really, I believe this relates to our bodies and the bodies of those whom we have a desire for. To honor someone simply means to recognize their true value or to esteem them as someone who has great value. But I want for us to consider for a moment, how can sexual desire honor people? How can it honor people? Well, consider what marriage is. God created marriage as a relationship in which a man and a woman honor one another and esteem one another as having great, great value by committing to a lifelong relationship that does not just no does not just join together two bodies, but joins together two souls. Honorable sexual desire, then, does not view the other person as simply a body to be used for pleasure. There is an honoring of that person's whole being with our hearts through marriage and continuing to honor them and esteeming them as having high value, as having souls and not just bodies in marriage. Therefore, I want to suggest that if we say, I want you to satisfy my sexual desires, but I do not want you as a covenant partner, is to dishonor them and cheapen their value by actually saying, I do not want your body and I do not or I want your body, but I do not care for your soul. In other words, people call this love today, but it is really the epidemic among singles and married people known as selfishness and dishonor. Desire without honor cheapens the value of people and treats a soul as simply a body to be exploited for our own uses. Therefore... Lust takes a very good thing, sexual desire, that God created and makes it absolutely terrible and destructive by stripping it of all the control, holiness, and honor meant to govern it. I like how John Piper put it. He said, lust is sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. I think that's a good way of grasping this idea. And Paul says here in verses 3, 4, and 5... 
abstain from sexual immorality and have none of that lust. Zero. None of it. Can we actually do that? Can we actually fight to accept zero sexual immorality and zero lust in our minds and bodies? Well, Paul actually continues in verses 6 through 8 to explain why we must pursue 100% purity in our desires. Notice the reasons he gives here. And this is important, by the way, to notice why we must. Because our minds later on will ask when tempted, why must I be free from all lust? I'm just looking at stuff or it's just going on in my mind or it's just something that everyone struggles with and we're all going to fall into. Why? So consequently, I believe verses six through eight can help us by telling us why and giving us reasons why and giving us really ammo and weapons to fight with against Satan in future temptations. Notice verses six through eight. Paul commands us that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There's a lot of reasons why not to engage in lust. We're going to notice three reasons from this text here. First, notice in verse 6 that lusting, we ought not lust because lusting means failing to love our neighbor. And really, Paul explains this by saying that sexual immorality and lust cause us to transgress and wrong our neighbor. This teaches us that sexual sins never affect only us. When we desire to simply have someone's body, but not in a marriage, consider and not honor the honoring them continually in that marriage. Are we loving them and treating them as a soul? No. Consider fornication and adultery not just condemns our own souls, but it condemns the souls of those who we are engaged with. We don't love that person. We don't love them in the slightest. In fact, it could be said that we hate them by our actions. It wrecks their soul, wrecks their family and our family. This is not love. And consider even if we simply just say, well, it's not harming anyone when I'm lusting after someone or viewing pornography. It does not harm anyone at all. Is it loving to treat someone as simply a body to be used Is it loving our neighbor as ourself as we cheapen their value? Uh, Though many say that pornography and lust harms no one, we don't have time to go into all this. But know this, almost every single person portrayed in pornography and other things surrounding that area, the world kind of views pornography only in the hardcore way. We know better, hopefully. Almost all who are portrayed in pornography are either forced into this lifestyle or only tolerate it through drugs and alcohol. They do not like it. Yet, our patronage keeps them in it. 
Consider what are we going to say on the day of judgment to the parents and grandparents who were praying for them throughout their life? What are we going to say to that mom and dad, that granddaddy and that grandma who prayed for their daughter or granddaughter or grandson or son? What would we say to them when we were the ones who used them and condemned their souls? We must keep fighting lust because lusting means failing to love our neighbor as ourself. One of the greatest commands given to us. The second thing we see in verse 6 is that lusting earns God's vengeance. Paul says there essentially that God is an avenger of all these things when we do wrong one another and disregard him. Satan often defeats us uh, in sexual desires and lust, really, and immorality by sweeping away the consequences and telling us there are no long-term consequences to what we are doing. So consider for just a moment, if we knew right now, Floridians, that a hurricane, class five, was coming our way, what would we do? We would prep hardcore. We would be putting shutters up. We would be escaping. We would be buying water if we were staying. We would try everything we could to protect our lives and the lives of our families. Paul says here, the consequences of lust are worse than any hurricane, than any natural disaster. Hurricanes can only destroy homes and kill families. Lust condemns souls to hell forever. Isn't this what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 27 through 29? He says there, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who has all, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Isn't Jesus saying here that the way we fight lust has eternal consequences? I say then that lust is taken far too lightly today. It's simply accepted that we're going to bring this hurricane upon our lives, this disaster. We take hurricanes seriously. Should we not Then, since hurricanes are nothing in comparison to the devastation this causes, should we not take lust very seriously? If we give up fighting fighting this and do not take it seriously, considering the consequences, we are clinically insane. If we do not fight to abstain from sexual immorality and lust, we and others will go to hell forever. This is no hurricane. This is hell we're talking about. The third thing we learn from this passage, notice verse 8. Lusting does not just disregard God, but it dishonors Him and dishonors His Holy Spirit. Paul reminds us here that our bodies have greater value because God gives us His Holy Spirit. And many might argue that God would not want for us to miss out on the greater sexual pleasures available to mankind. And Paul even more directly deals with this in 1 Corinthians 6 when some people in the congregation and culture say, Well, my body was given to me by God to enjoy sexual immorality. But Paul says there, 
Our bodies were given to us to become temples of the Holy Spirit. We're created to be temples of the Holy Spirit to be used as tools for God's glory. Therefore, that means that sexual immorality and lust dishonors our body, which is the same as dishonoring a temple and cheapening a temple and cheapening God. And it disregards God's creative purposes for us. Man was not made for sex. Man was made to be the embodiment of God's character and the place where the dissemination of his knowledge is found in this world. Therefore, we must fight to completely abstain from sexual sins and the lust that fuels it. Because if we do not, we fail to love our neighbor. We will be eternally condemned and we cheapen our bodies that were made to be used for God's glory. Our souls and other souls are at stake here. Since the importance of this cannot be overstated, how then can we fight sexual immorality and the passion that drives it? Notice verses 4 to 5 there. And I want you to notice how in verses 4 and 5, there is a contrast set up. And there is one difference between those who do not have control... Uh, holiness and honor in their sexual desire and those that do. There's one difference and it's noted at the end of verse 5. Those who are lustful do not know God. If a person is engaged in a life of sexual immorality and lust, in order to understand how to fight this desire, we must understand something from the get-go. This person does not truly know God. But can this conclusion really be accepted? There are so many preachers, elders, biblical scholars, and longtime Christians uh, who after years of service to the Lord, we find out after decades, the whole time they were involved in immorality and lust or pornography. Didn't they know God? They spent decades in the word. And yes, they did know a lot about God. Did they not? And do they not? But demons teach us a lesson, don't they? Who was it that knew all about Jesus in the Gospels whenever they were being cast out, when Jesus came up upon them? What are you doing? You are the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel. Get away from us. We know who you are. They knew all about Him. They knew exactly who Jesus was. But they tell us that a mere head knowledge of Jesus Christ, a mere head knowledge of who God is, does not necessarily mean anything. Knowing God is experiencing and enjoying His character, His love, His presence, His law, His glory, His service. To know God is to have a real relationship with Him. To know God is to treasure Him. What does this have to do with overcoming lust? Well, consider, why is it that we allow our bodies, allow our sexual desire to move beyond our control, to cross lines of holiness, and to dishonor people? Why is it that we do it? Is it because we love the consequences of sin? Is it because we want to be enslaved? No. It's because every time we always think that we are finding some greater treasure or pleasure, we think that there is some great... Every time there's some great forbidden, juicy pleasure, fruit that we've been missing out on all this time. And if we will take hold of it, 
then it will bring us to a new level of experience in life. And things will be better than they've been before. That is always why. But if we truly know God and truly treasure God, then we know that He is the greatest, most valuable, and most glorious hidden treasure that anyone could ever find. If we know and treasure God, then we know that He is the rarest, most overlooked, most undervalued pleasure and treasure that anyone could ever experience. That that He has the best love and offers the best fulfillment that we could find. If we know God, friends, if we know Him and treasure Him, then our search for the hidden treasure and the best, juiciest pleasures in life is completely over. Our search is done. We don't have to look anymore. But if our lives cannot be described as one freed from sexual immorality and dishonorable, unholy desire, we don't know God. We don't know him. This means that the one who entertains homosexual thoughts and lifestyles, the unmarried girl who dishonors her body with a boy because he says he loves her, and the man who cannot keep his eyes and thoughts off of other women, does not know God. This means the woman who reads novels and watches movies and dreams of how her man should talk and touch and treat her does not know God. This means the man who reads his Bible and then goes into a private room and views pictures and movies in secrecy does not know God. This means then that the, the spouse, the one, the man or woman who pressures their spouse... To be like the men and women they see in books, pictures, and movies has unnatural desires, sinful desires, shameful desires, and does not know God. This means the person who continues to talk, flirt, touch with, and sleep, touch and sleep with someone who is not their first husband or wife, this person does not know God. Why? Because if we know God, then we know. We've already found the greatest treasure and pleasure that ever existed. The greatest treasure and pleasure available to mankind. And we are filled. And so we would stop searching. We would stop our search. We are proving that we are not satisfied in God Because we still crave to fill these fantasies and seek to fill these fantasies. So here's the question. Do we know God? Do we know him? If those who live a life of lust do not truly know God and have not truly tasted his glory, this does it not change the way We think about and battle sexual immorality. This changes everything about our battle. First, this teaches us that passionate lust is not an oops problem. It is the sign of a deep spiritual emptiness crippling our families and crippling our churches. Because lust is the sign of one whose desires have not been completely filled in Jesus Christ. And this is idolatry. 
not a simple problem at all. I grow so weary of the way we are all kind of tempted to just excuse sexual sins and lust as something that can just be swept away by forgiveness. Folks, our biggest problem in lust is not our need for forgiveness. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem in lust and immorality is that we don't know God. We're stuck in We're stuck in idolatry, and if we are here, then we've tasted God and turned Him away. That's our biggest problem. And so if that's the big problem, we can't keep excusing this as some minor problem that does not harm us, our marriages, our children, or our churches. Both the man who secretly lusts And the woman who looks elsewhere to define what her man should be are destroying not just themselves, but their families and their churches. Why? Why is this the case? Because we don't truly know God, and that has terrible consequences. Though we don't see it in our own selves in the midst of the sin, everyone else is dealing with the consequences of us not knowing God. We don't have an oops problem on our hands. We have an absolute nightmare. Nominal Christians not satisfied in Christ. It's time to confront that sin. And it's time to confront it now. But how? How can we do that? Passionate lust, second, is solved by treasuring Christ. I believe this is important to say because many, uh, we're, we're often tempted to say that lust is solved in other ways. Let's be very clear, clear about this. Passionate lust is an unnatural evil. That single men and women is not solved by gaining a husband or wife. And the proof of that is that pornography addicts don't stop when they get married. And married men and women, lust is not solved by having a more interested wife or a cooler husband or something to that extent. It's not solved by any of that. Why? Because sex doesn't satisfy lust. Because lust is an unnatural desire that is not solved or satisfied in natural ways. Lust is ultimately solved by knowing and treasuring Christ. Lust is solved, Christians, by completely immersing ourselves in the Christian walk. Lust is completely solved by completely immersing ourselves in His Word, loving His Word, thinking about His character, pursuing His service in our life, reading and praying and spending all of our free time in that. Why, Why does that solve it? Because if we will completely immerse ourselves in that life, in that life of Christ, then He, Christ, God, is the one we will daydream about. He's the one we will spend our free time pursuing and thinking about how we can please Him more. He's the one we will read about. He's the one that we will do anything, anything to please Him. 
not ourselves, not our physical desires and wants. We will be satisfied completely. Furthermore, part of treasuring Christ is obeying his law, which means that sleeping with one's first husband or wife is the best experience we could ever have. And it's not because it meets up to the standards of lust, but because it provides superior satisfaction because it's free from guilt. It glorifies God and it pleases God when we engage in those relations. And because of that, there is no greater pleasure to be found in this world. We must believe this and boldly declare this before any calloused sexual aficionados that declare otherwise and scoff at us for believing so. Third, temptations to engage in passionate lust are battled by first preventing temptations and second, by remembering that we've already found the greatest pleasure and treasure because we will be tempted. None of this is to say that temptations will never come up. Temptations will never crop up. We won't ever be tempted with something we see or a opportunity. Temptations are going to surprise us. And in that moment, the question will be whether or not we are prepared, whether or not we have a battle game plan. And so the first thing we must do is we need to limit the opportunity for temptations to come through. We could spend hours, we know, we could spend hours talking about all the ways that we can prevent these temptations from coming through. But in a simple way, this simply means that we've got to start first avoiding close relationships with those of the opposite sex. That's not prudery, that's wisdom. Second, that means that in our TV watching, we need to be looking up our shows and looking up our movies ahead of time if we desire to watch those things. And if something does come through, you can ask me about websites uh, later on. There's great websites to help you check that stuff out. But if something does come through, that means we're changing the channel, we're looking away, we're fast forwarding and not trying to put ourselves in that situation in the first place to be tempted to continue to watch or look. Third, that means there should be very there there should never be there should never be unfiltered internet access, especially in a day and age like today. Almost every single router that we have today that you can buy, almost every single one that we can buy off of our shelves today has free free software that blocks these websites. Free. And uh And if that's not enough, it it blocks the websites on any device that's connected to that Internet at the time. If that's not enough, there are great software tools like Covenant Eyes. We can talk more about that later in personal conversations, but there are so many ways we need to have good game plans for this. Hedges, by the way, great book in this concept. So first, we must... We must prevent these these desires from being tempted. Second, we need to have a battle plan for when these temptations do come through. There are many tactics people use, and if you already have a great plan of attack for when these temptations do come through, then great, use that. But I think that our greatest, our greatest tool is Jesus Christ and remembering that he is our treasure. 
This is something that's already been significant for me as I've considered this this week. And as temptations already pop themselves up as we walk around in this world. Every time when we are tempted, here's a good battle plan. Remember, I have already found the greatest hidden treasure and pleasure that exists. I don't need to look around. I don't need to look at that. I don't need to entertain that thought. I don't need to click on this or that. I don't need to get to know that man or woman better. Why? Scott, because I've already found the greatest treasure and pleasure that ever exists, and none of those things can offer me anything better. Don't stop preaching that sermon to yourself in your mind. What we say to ourselves in those moments is critical. We are the ones who in our minds control, in a sense, our destiny with how we fight this. Use Jesus Christ. Remember that he's your treasure. Don't just treasure him. But in the moment when we are tempted, remember that he is our greatest treasure. Preach that sermon. I've already found the greatest treasures and pleasures. Pray to God. I love you. You are the Holy One and I have found you. And shut off. Shut off everything. Run. Whatever that situation or temptation is, flee from it as Joseph did. The world is going to continue to tell us that there is more Christians. The world is going to continue to tell us that we are settling if we do not participate in unrestrained sexual desires and unrestrained sex. They are wrong. They are the ones who are missing out on the greatest joys that are available to mankind. Let's not be the nominal Christian here who has those joys available, but turns them down because of a lack of self-control and turns them down for lesser gods that do not satisfy, but only destroy. Let's not be the nominal Christian here who gets excited about purity for one day or gets excited about purity for one week or one month, but let's be the Christian that perseveres in the joy of treasuring Christ. Let's be the Christian that perseveres in putting putting away lust. Don't dwell on yesterday's successes or failures because God is not fighting for our purity yesterday. God is fighting for our purity day to day. God is fighting for our purity today. Let's leave the unbelief of lust and come to know and treasure our great Lord. More than ever, I want to say that if you are battling these desires and failing in these desires, talk to us. Talk to us. We have no greater tool right here on earth than the brothers and sisters that can help one another keep each other accountable in lust and immorality. We've got to be willing to be open with one another about these things. We've got to have people keeping us accountable. And so talk to us, whether publicly or privately, about these things. We're not going to be insensitive towards you if you are struggling with these things. 
because no temptation that has overtaken man, uh, there is no temptation that has overtaken man that is not common to all mankind. We all struggle and we all desire to help one another. And so if there is any way that we can help you overcome this unbelief of lust and come to know and treasure our great Lord, then please tell us. Please either talk to us in personal conversations or come forward to the front while we stand and while we sing.